So a lot of questions about, um, you know, what role, if any, did mental illness play in this mass shooting? And there's going to be a lot of questions, I think, for some time to come. Because I don't know how you solve this. I really don't. I think it's going to take an enormous investment and a whole lot of honesty to, you know, to finally tackle this issue. Uh, but we did get a statement issued by the family very late today. It was the first piece of actual information we got on the shooting as they released the name of the shooter. And the family writes in part, quote, we're utterly devastated by the incomprehensible news that our son was responsible for the senseless violence and loss of life that took place on the Danforth. Our son had severe mental health challenges, struggling with psychosis and depression his entire life. The intervention of professionals were unsuccessful. Medications and therapy unable to treat him. And while we did our best to seek help for him throughout his life of struggle and pain, we could never imagine that this would be his devastating and destruction, destructive end. And so I think there'll be a lot to look at. And there's other pieces of information uh, about some tragedies that had taken place throughout this man's life that may have led to the issues he suffered. But I think a lot of people are going to be asking and demanding answers as to how someone like this would have gotten a gun. Did they buy it illegally? Did they buy it in a store? If they did buy it in a store, why wasn't it alerted? And if, in fact, he was being treated by professionals, would he have not been red flagged if he had psychosis? Let's bring in Oren Amate, who knows a heck of a lot more about these issues than I do. He, of course, is a global news radio psychology expert, and you can find him at docamate.com. Hello there, sir. Hi, Alex. So with the limited amount of information that you have heard in the last couple of hours, what's your takeaway on this? It's so difficult because if he's suffering from depression, that's one thing. If it truly is psychosis, as his family says, then we do have a potential case. I mean, although, of course, he's dead, but he could have qualified for not criminally responsible. And I know people hate to hear that, but we have to distinguish between bad personalities and horrific mental health conditions. He was, according to the police, known to them, and it was for issues uh, dealing with you know, mental illness. Would this not have put him on some kind of uh, watch list and or uh, list if they maybe felt he was a threat? Well, I don't know if he would be on a watch list unless they thought it was for, you know, like terrorist type activities. If his name is known to the police, you know, that's about the extent of it. It's known. Um, if he did have mental health issues, then if he had ever been arrested, uh, it's very likely that he would have been put through a diversionary uh, process whereby, you know, if he, if he conducts himself properly, if he gets treatment, if he has the proper supports, he wouldn't get a record. I mean, and that's where mental health compl- uh, or mental health issues can play a role in the justice system. One of, an, one of the earlier roles, I've been involved in a number of cases where they do try to divert the person outside of the criminal system and get them the help that they need. Right. But I would think if he was known to police and if he was getting treated by professionals, let's say, do they not talk back and forth at all, ever? 
normally the patient uh, therapist confidentiality um, supersedes all that. The only time that we would break it is if we felt a person is in imminent risk of, uh, of, of harming themselves or somebody else, and it has to be a specific threat. So if he just says, I'm really angry, I want to shoot up a bunch of people, even that would not be sufficient for a doctor to, uh, to violate that confidentiality. It has to be specific. Okay. And so when you look, and I don't know if you've seen the actual footage of what has been released, uh, which was taken by witness video, where you actually see the shooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, seen you've seen it. Okay. Yeah. So in it, and in, in if you're listening and you haven't seen it yet, it shows the shooter walking on the Danforth, stopping, raising his arms with a gun. It is a handgun uh, and shooting. Would you not have to be, I mean, this would speak to planning, organization, and, and to high performance, would it not? It would seem. I mean, he looked like it was uh, deliberate actions, but if he's suffering uh, from a delusion, which would be a false belief, that would not prevent him from being able to carry out the attack because he could believe, for example, and again, we're only speculating here, but if his delusion, for example, was that, let's say, the Russians are invading us and everyone on the Danforth is a covert agent or something, you know, he would still be able to, you know, manage all the actions that we saw, do it deliberately, yet believe he's in the right, not really know what he's doing. And that would be an example of not criminally responsible. So when someone's in a psychosis, it doesn't mean that they've lost, I mean, they've lost touch with reality, but it doesn't mean they've lost touch uh, with all their functioning. Is it possible that his family would not have known that he might be, um, you know, in a psychosis, psychotic, uh, and I might be wording this uh, wrongly, and I apologize if if I am, and you can correct me, but if he was going through an episode, um, would his family not have had signs? Would they have possibly not known that there would be a gun in his possession? It's, I mean, you asked at the beginning a great question, which is how did he get that firearm? So could, you know, those are two separate questions. Could they not know that he had purchased one? For sure. Would they not know that he was going through a psychotic episode? That would be a harder um, outcome because when someone is in psychosis, especially if they're saying he has a long history of it, when the first person first starts to show signs, you don't necessarily know that they are losing their mind, so to speak. They might be talking about uh, co-workers talking about them, or maybe there was a neighbor that was acting suspicious, and that doesn't sound that bizarre. But over time, you recognize that the false beliefs and or false perception that they're having, you know, are, are much more obvious. So if he has a history like this, they would already know this. And so if he was starting to spiral, they should have seen a, you know, a, a significant exacerbation in his symptoms. Uh, they should have been worried. He should have been acting differently than he had been acting if he had been on his medications. So I think the family should have been aware that something was going on. Now, can they predict that he's going to go out and shoot people? Uh, most likely not, unless he gave them clear evidence you know, to suspect that. But um, as far as his deterioration, you would hope that they would see that. The sad thing is in Canada... Um, once someone does start to spiral downward, as a mental health professional, all I can say to the family is there's not much you can do until this person has spiraled downward to the point that they can't take care of themselves or they are an imminent threat to themselves or to others. And then, unfortunately, police often get involved. And if they're not taken to hospital, they're taken to jail. Right. Um, which is not necessarily the best way to go because they don't get the proper treatment. We'll get into that in just a second. But, you know, I don't know if mental illness is the actual cause of this. This is something that was put out by the family. This is something that uh, he had a history, according to police. And so I don't want to discount it, but I also don't want to say that that is the actual cause of what happened uh, on Sunday night. Um, But the family, no question, 
uh, of of what caused their son to do this. And no matter if they did or did not report it, they, they'd be going through an unbelievable uh, amount of, of stress right now. Right. It's it's incomprehensible. And I mean, again, we don't know his family. We don't know what's going on. But it's very easy for people to play armchair pundits uh, until they're put in that situation. Well, they're easy to vilify. Exactly. Easy to vilify um, the, the him, him, his family, everybody. And once again, until you've been in a situation like this, how do you know how you're going to react? As someone who deals with um, people with mental illness um, issues, are you concerned at all that it is being abused or overused, um, you know, as reasons behind, you know, the big uh, casualties around the world, whether it be a terrorist attack, whether it be someone driving a, a truck or a van into a crowd, or as we, you know, look into mass shooting? Are you considering, are you concerned that it is overused? Um, I, I am because uh, there's a huge difference between psychosis, which is uh, what we were talking about possibly, which is a loss of touch with reality, and psychopathy, which is basically evil. And so when people conflate the two, people who do have a serious mental health issue, uh, they don't get the compassion and empathy they deserve. And people who are just psychopaths or you know other types of monsters try to use mental health issues as an excuse for their reprehensible behavior when they are fully aware of what they are doing. They just choose not to care about it. Yeah. And on the total flip side, because we tend to spend way too much time talking about the shooters or the suspects or the accused, often those who are the real headlines of these stories, which would be a 10-year-old girl and an 18-year-old young woman, you know, about to start her life in university. You know, those families, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I can't even imagine what they would be going through. Yeah, it's, you know, a few things about that. One, whenever you lose a family member, of course, it's uh, it's difficult. When it's a young person, uh, it, our brains are not wired to accept the death of such young children. And um, especially when it's such a senseless, tragic incident like this, people are second-guessing. People are saying, what could I have done differently? I shouldn't, should not have let them out. I should have done this differently. And, uh, you know, it's going to be extra torture for the families who are going through something that I hope, I hope they have enough support out there uh, because, you know, I've had several patients who've gone through similarly tragic circumstances and you don't recover easily, if ever at all. All you can do is try to mitigate uh, the damage and you need a lot of support for that. But it would totally interfere with their ability to grieve. I mean, never mind the shock of it, but how do you grieve when you know the whole world's looking at you and the whole world is talking about you and you're essentially living in a goldfish bowl Watching the world go around when all you want to do is collapse and cry. Exactly, and that's where support should really come in. Uh, the, the people that uh, who know them and care about them should be trying their best to act as a buffer so that they can have privacy, they can grieve the way they need to grieve, and they can try as almost impossible as it is to move forward in some way from this horrific event. Yeah, uh, last question to you. I, I've met, you know, mothers or, or parents in, in their grief of losing children. And, and one comment from a, a mother a long time ago uh, who lost her children um, in a bizarre uh, accident that no one could have predicted. You know, she, I talked to her a couple of months after the death of her children, and she said something very, it's always stayed with me. She said, you know, it wasn't until you left, the media left, that we were forced to realize and accept the fact that they, the children were gone. I mean, 
it really didn't become real until the media spotlight stopped. Because as long as the media was around, we were keeping their children or their loved ones alive. Right, and you're also, um, you know, helping them to externalize. So they were, you know, dealing with the media, um, trying to, I don't know, find the right words. They were processing it in a way that most of us do not, which is, you know, very, let's say, uh, internalized in many ways. And, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing for some people, finding a cause, uh, becoming an anti-gun, you know, advocate or anti-violence advocate or something like that can help them process it. And for others, all they need from the very beginning is to be able to grieve, and sometimes the media prevents that from happening. Whereas in other cases, people you know, appreciate it because it gives them a platform. It allows them to try to make sure that their loved one's uh, tragic passing is not in vain. You know, They're trying to do something yeah. good from it. Keeps them alive for just a little bit longer. Yeah. Oren, I don't think we've ha- had our last discussion on this, and uh, unfortunately, I think there are a lot more questions right now um, that need to be answered. I appreciate your insight. Thank you very much, Alex. Have a good night. That is Oren Amate. You can follow him at docamate.com. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.